From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, uh, we are talking with Congressman Ro Khanna, who uh, is a Democrat representing the Silicon Valley in California. Uh, he's here to talk with us about his latest book, Dignity in a Digital Age. And, uh, you know, this this book and I think his his broader mission is to help take some of the innovation and the prosperity and the wealth that exists within his district in Silicon Valley and bring it out to the rest of the country, whether that's a, an urban community, whether it's an urban community, a rural community, um, how can the rest of America benefit from all of the, the things that technology has brought to his district? Yeah. And, and that um, centers most specifically around the uh, technology as an economic engine, right? Um, Silicon Valley, I think he says it's, it's, um, it, it is worth, that Silicon Valley is worth uh, significantly more than the GDP of like Russia, right? It is an enormously powerful economic engine and, and there's no signs of that kind of stopping, but Many Americans, and especially Americans in rural communities and you know underserved, marginalized communities, feel that um, none of that is coming to them. That that they have been left out of this of this revolution. And so, uh, Kana says, um, "True, uh, that is that is true, and that's a problem, and that's a problem that um, our nation needs to address and needs to figure out ways to." bring the opportunities of a digital age uh, throughout the United States. This book, Dignity in the Digital Age, also kind of gets at some of the, the themes that we talked about with, for example, with Danielle Allen, who, you know, mentioned that it is going to be really difficult. Like we have a, a goal of creating a multiracial egalitarian democracy and um, I think for the representative, that means, you know, to be able to contribute and to have a say in how things are going on. But we have a lot of problems, a lot of, let me say this, we have a lot of challenges, <laughs> um, you know, social media, AI, fractured media um, landscape, a fractured media landscape, polarization. Um, and then we have vast economic inequality. And by kind of thinking about ways of getting the wealth and um, innovation out of Silicon Valley into other communities across the country. I mean, um, going back to you know the the urtext for for us, how democracies die. They um, they talk at the very end that there has never been a genuine uh, egalitarian, multi ethnic, multiracial democracy, and we have no choice but to try to con uh, construct that, uh, make that real. Um, not to say, I mean, not merely to say that we should do it, right, that it's a matter of justice, but that it's in, incumbent upon us. We can't not do it anymore. And, um, and so what Rokana is doing is um, arguing that uh, this, this digital um, dimension of the economy mm -hmm. Um, the most fertile, the most dynamic, the most wealth-producing aspect of our economy must be 
um, extended to these other communities. And it's just important to say, that's why the title is Dignity. It's not merely a matter of making a living mm-hmm. and, um, and you know, uh, having some economic stability. It's also the dignity that comes from having a, a job that you can be proud of and be happy in, um, being part of this um, nationwide effort to, to build something. One of the kind of central components here is that, you know, he says like people should, should be able to stay in their hometowns. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I, I'm, I have been reading a lot about um, the late 19th and early 20th century America where people, black people are leaving their homes, um, are leaving the places where they were born um, to go, you know, to Chicago, New York, um, out west to California Mm -hmm. to get the things that they need. People don't want to do that. And, you know, I think his argument is that people shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't have to leave your home to, um, you know, have good work, to be able to contribute to have good education, so on and so forth. And that kind of gets to this other point, which we'll talk about in, in the interview, but I, I couldn't help as I was reading the book and, and having this conversation to think about um, the episode that I think both of you were on with Alec McGillis about mm-hmm. Amazon mm-hmm. and how all yep. of these tech jobs are not created equal. And what do you have to do to ensure that it does that the job is not just somewhere people go to earn a paycheck. What is that connection to dignity and to community and the ways that those two things intersect? And I I think that is still very much an an open question. And, and, you know, Kana kind of realizes that, but it's part of, I think he sees that as part of his project or his mission to try to figure out how to, how to remedy some of those disparities. There's a lot that I want to jump in with there what can we, what can capitalism demand of us? And what can um, we demand um, as uh, people who, as people who demand dignity, what can we demand of capitalism? Um, But I think it makes sense first to go to his interview, and then we can come back and talk about that. Let's go now to the interview with Congressman Roe Congressman Ro Khanna, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we dive into your book, Dignity in a Digital Age, I want to just uh, talk briefly about the war in Ukraine and specifically something that we have been grappling with on on the show and I, and I think perhaps relates to some of your ideas about democracy. And that is, you know, is what we are seeing unfold going to be the the type of shock to the system that might make America and perhaps other Western democracies realize just how fragile democracy really is? Or is it perhaps going to be something that we all watch on TV and, you know, doom scroll all day long, but see as something that's happening over there and not maybe make that that connection outside of of Ukraine and, and Russia more broadly? What what is your your take on that, and and are you perhaps seeing any evidence from your constituents or or your colleagues in Congress about about how things are are playing out? I definitely think that this has rallied the American people and 
my colleagues to stand with Ukraine, a understanding that the world is still a brutal place, that American leadership matters, that Ukraine is an example of why it's important for us to support NATO, why it's important for us to be unified at home so that people don't perceive weakness in standing up for freedom and democracy. I think the resistance of Ukraine has been extraordinary, and that has inspired Americans in many ways. People are inspired by President Zelensky and all of what they're seeing on social media. It's still a brutal war, and uh, Russia has a lot of just manpower and a lot of equipment. So I'm hopeful that the Ukrainians can continue to hold on and and put on a resistance. But at some point, there has to be a a ceasefire and an off-ramp so that we can have peace. But overall, I've been, I do think that Americans are engaged and don't view this as a distant problem, but are are rallying around the president and, and the country. Yeah. And you, you mentioned uh, social media there. We are, of course, seeing so much of, of this conflict play out on, on social media. Mm-hmm. And I know that you you represent a lot of Silicon Valley in, in your congressional district. You know, as we as we think about kind of the, the history of of social media, there was perhaps a period of of utopianism that maybe culminated in the Arab Spring, followed by a more dystopian period that perhaps culminated in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. And and it's, you know, we're sort of moving perhaps into another phase now, but it's, it's unclear, at least to me, where things are going to go from here. I think that there has been a huge contradiction with social media. On the one hand, it has really empowered voices that were marginalized. You saw that with the Arab Spring. You see that with the Me Too movement. You see that with Black Lives Matter. You're seeing that to some extent with with Ukraine, the inspiring pictures that people in Ukraine are posting and videos that they're posting of their resistance, of the heroic efforts of fathers taking their families outside and then coming back into Ukraine to fight. A lot of that we know because of social media, not traditional reporting. And it is countering uh, a very large behemoth in, in Russia. On the other hand, you've had social media used with Russia itself, with Russian, uh, Russia TV to, to sow disinformation. As you pointed out, it led to uh, the January 6th, the lies and, and, and insurrection of violence. The challenge for us then is how do we take this new medium that's created a new digital sphere and have it become more a forum for the democratization of voice, for thoughtful dialogue, rather than a place for mobilizing nationalism or extremism. And I think we're just starting on that project. Remember, it took 100 years after the printing press for that not to be used for pamphleteering that started wars. So uh, this is a humanities task to build the liberal democratic institutions online that uh, can harness the internet to be a force for good. Yeah. And I mean, as, as you talk with, you know, leaders from these companies that, that, that you represent in, in your district, how are they thinking about this challenge? I, I think there's an awakening of their social responsibility, their political responsibility. I don't think that was on the forefront of their minds for many years. It was just, how do we grow uh, our business? How do we grow more users? How do we grow more uh, engagement 
And that was the algorithms that they created and optimized for. But suddenly they realized that just growing more users, just growing more engagement doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be a force for good. And their mission statements were not just about profit, but being a force for good. And now they realize, wow, there's some huge negatives to this, that, you know, Instagram in some ways is the worst of junior high at times. The proliferation of hate, of extremism online needs to be checked. The proliferation of misinformation needs to be checked. So they, they're uh, beginning to embrace their role as new media companies, but it's not sufficient for them to do that voluntarily. We need thoughtful regulation so we can make sure that these spaces are conducive to de- democracy. Yeah, and, and I know you, you write about this uh, in your book, so let's let's go there and, and, and dive in. I want to start with your theory of democratic patriotism, which, as I understand, is is borrowed from Frederick Douglass and, and John Rawls and, and perhaps others. So can you lay lay that out for us, what it is and, and perhaps how you came to this theory? Well, democratic patriotism is the view that a country is stitched together by more than procedural justice. And by that, I mean the famous view of us, of America, that is, well, we're a country based on an idea, we're a a, a nation that is rooted in liberty and uh, equality and a constitution, and all of that is true, but there's more to America. There's a culture to America, whether that's a sports culture, a music culture, a popular culture, and their customs and traditions. And Douglas, in this brilliant speech in 1869, talks about being a composite nation, that an American culture will emerge out of all of the different cultures in the free era of America. We will sort of build a composite. And what I write about is how can we do that in uh, a 21st century America where everyone has the equality of participating in building this culture. And so we can be patriotic about America for all it stands, not just a procedural conception of America, but that it's so important that everyone has inequality in creating that. And I link that to technology in saying, if we don't have equality of technological production in a modern economy, you're not going to have inequality to participate in the creation of culture. Yeah. And, and, and say, say more about that, what you mean by equality of, of technical production. Well, in my district and the surrounding areas, you have $11 trillion of market cap. I mean, it's staggering. Russia's entire economy as a GDP is $1.6 trillion. And young people are very optimistic about the future. They think the world's their oyster. They want to do robotics. They want to do the next uh, technological uh, innovation. But the opportunities have been so concentrated. And so you have both billionaires, millionaires, and all of these techies having disproportionate cultural influence and disproportionate economic influence. And large parts of the country, rural America, black and brown communities, that have been totally excluded from modern wealth generation, not having the opportunities to build the economic prosperity in their hometowns. And so what I argue is for the decentralization of a lot of technology, the argument that the 25 million new digital jobs that pay twice the median average need to be uh, distributed across the country. And you... You you give several um, examples in in the book of of this about you know cities and towns that are really trying to embrace 
this this idea and you know bring bring tech jobs you 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 write a lot about the the future of of tech jobs and how we need to expand our definition of of what a tech job even is can you just walk us through an example of of what this looks like in in practice on the ground sure i start the book with alex hughes because i think it's so important that people not caricature this as let's make coal miners coders that's a horrible way of thinking of this because most of the 25 million jobs don't require any real coding. In fact, the new mantra among a lot of tech companies is low code, no code, meaning these jobs don't require much coding and they don't even require a college degree. So Alex Hughes is making stuff. He's making refrigerators. He's making uh, dishwashers. And he says, I know how to do this. My family knows how to do this in Kentucky. We go back generations where the Hughes make things, we're technicians, we build things. Now he's just doing it with some software that allows him to make smart appliances. And the point is he got a six-month or 10-month credential in that in using that technology software. But the job itself is a, a manufacturing job. And so the technology jobs of the future are going to be manufacturing jobs, retail jobs, healthcare jobs, education jobs. They're going to require a technical proficiency. They're going to require some ability to understand or manipulate software, but they're not going to require advanced right. So as, as I was reading your book, I, I couldn't help but think about Alec McGillis's book, Fulfillment, all about Amazon. We, yeah. we had him on the show earlier this year. And, uh, you know, the the story that he tells is, yes, these jobs come, but Amazon's not paying any taxes. So, you know, that that limits the the benefit or sort of the, the downstream effects that these these communities where the, the new Amazon locations come can really provide to the people living there is I mean, how do you think about solving that problem? And is it perhaps do, do we make too much? Is, is is Amazon the exception and not the rule when it when it comes to these these types of, of you know, relocations and, and, and companies opening new facilities? Well, I love Alec McGillis's book. I think I cited a few times in my own. And he's absolutely right that the jobs of Amazon warehouses are not often good paying, good dignified jobs where you have an algorithm as your boss, where people who are making 30 bucks an hour are now making 15 bucks an hour, where the work conditions are not safe and are, are taxing. And data centers often are disruptive in these communities and aren't creating jobs. The question, though, is not where will we create new Amazon fulfillment centers, workforce centers, is where will we create new Amazon uh, digital jobs, which which are paying $80,000 on average, which are good pay. And those shouldn't just be concentrated in a few cities, Seattle or, or, or Virginia. Those should be more distributed. And the workers need to have more pay and benefits and, and dignity, which Amazon can can afford. So I, I think we need a decentralization of the good paying digital jobs, and we need a raising of standards of the service jobs that often are uh, accompanying those digital jobs. Yeah. And this this idea of, of dignity, uh, I think, also gets to something you describe as the spirit of civility. And you, you talk a little bit about how this played out in your own life growing up in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, not far from where we are here at Penn State. Can you just talk a little bit about that, that spirit, how it, it developed in you and, and, and how you see it today? 
Well, I think on the Democratic side, we're very, very good about talking about fairness as a matter of rights, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to nutrition. But justice, in my view, requires more than just the right to the basic material goods, though those are so important. It requires the ability to, to contribute, the ability to make a meaningful difference, the ability to produce, and the ability to do that if you want for your hometown. And dignity to me was this sense that people don't feel like they have that opportunity anymore for them or their families, that they're being told to move, that they're told that their kids aren't going to have those opportunities, and that they, they don't want a future simply where uh, you have redistribution tax the billionaires in my district and provide them a, a handout. Now, we should tax the billionaires in my district, and we should tax Amazon more. But we have to do more than just the taxing and redistribution post-production and economy. We have to respect people's dignity, which means respecting their ability, talent to contribute, and providing them opportunities to do that. And in my view, I use dignity in a double sense. I say it means having an opportunity to contribute to economic life and to citizenship, to, pull, to, 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 to the citizenship life of a 21st century democracy. And that means having some say over the digital architecture, the digital public sphere. How important is it for Democrats to take credit for some of these gains, whether it's bringing these these tech jobs or some of this work about building the new digital infrastructure? I'm thinking, for example, of you know former President Trump and, and, and the carrier plant and all of his talk about coal jobs. Now, some of that might be unique to, to his personality and his, his style of doing things, but it seems to me that you know Democrats have, have been more reluctant to say, no, we are the ones who are doing these things, who are bringing these benefits to you. The president, I think, started in a great way when he recognized Intel in my district, the CEO, Pat Gelsinger, and, and, and he was able to say, we're bringing $20 billion into Ohio to revitalize the Midwest. That's Intel's uh, investment. I mean, that's far more than Trump ever did with the carrier deal. It's not even comparable or Foxconn. And yet the whole country knew about the carrier deal. And the whole country still doesn't know that Intel is putting $20 billion into Ohio after the president mentioned it in the beginning of the State of the Union. Every Democrat needs to be talking about the revitalization of America through new investment, through technology, which is going to create the new manufacturing jobs, the new retail jobs, the new construction jobs. Trump diagnosed a problem, and the problem was the deindustrialization of lots of parts of America. And he, di and he diagnosed the problem of communities left out. But his solution was not a true one. What we have to say is we understand the grievance, we understand the hurt, we understand the anger. Here is a plan to actually get opportunity, job creation, prosperity to communities for you and your kids. And, you know, political scientists have written a lot in, in recent years about the increasing polarization in, in the U.S. and how much stronger our national political identities are becoming and how that, you know, makes it difficult for people to work together, even when it is to, to achieve something that should ostensibly be a, a shared or, or common goal. How do you how do you reckon with this idea of of polarization in in the work that you're doing and 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 the ideas you have about how we move forward? It's a big challenge. I mean, part of my thought is if we're working together and prospering together with the decentralization of technology, maybe that helps somewhat. The fact that Alex Hughes in Paintsville, Kentucky, is working with an Indian American entrepreneur and with people in 
Silicon Valley and with people in Atlanta and Chicago. I can only think integrated teams, distributed teams, it can help to some extent uh, mitigate the, the deep divisions. But it's going to take more than that. It's going to take listening to each other, respecting each other, figuring out how do we have some sense of common culture. And that's, of course, Douglas could believe that in 1869, when he defends Chinese immigration, this from a person who was enslaved for 20 years, and he writes, America is on the ascent, and I believe we're going to become the first multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. We're going to be this composite nation. Certainly, he overcame much harder odds than we do. It gives the hope that we could do that in trying to better understand each other and, 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 and have honest dialogue and try to understand where people are coming from. But I think the prerequisite for that is to have economic opportunity in places left out. Right. And I, I think there's also perhaps at, at play here too, rebuilding or, or reestablishing trust in some of the institutions that are necessary to make democracy work. You know, some people certainly think that the, the media is lying to them. Politicians are, are bought and sold by lobbyists and corporations. Businesses are just out to, to screw them over. So where, where does that, that idea of, of trust fit into this thesis? Trust is a huge deficit, but how do we gain that trust? I mean, the question is, what do we need to do for that trust? I think we need to do concrete things like President Biden did with Intel, $20 billion, 30,000 jobs. This is not just policy. This is not just abstraction. This is happening in the community. And then to tell those stories and then people say, okay, this is working. When it's just legislative, when it's just abstract, that I think generates cynicism. So the more concrete proof points we have, the more we can slowly uh, build trust. Right. And, you know, the, this also, I think, gets to some of the the, the racial disparities in, in technology, particularly some of the, the higher end jobs in, in engineering and, and software development and, and the like, which, you know, we, we know from, from the, the, the work of scholars and, and, and journalists what can happen when, you know, algorithms and, and systems are not designed by people who are representative of the, the communities that they serve. And I know you also outline ideas for how to solve that part of the problem. Well, I think that the digital architecture is so important in defining the rules of debate and defining who gets to have a voice. And it's not fair for that digital architecture to be constructed simply in Silicon Valley. There ought to be a people having a stake in that architecture. Let me give you an example. Clubhouse, you know, popularized by uh, black artists, has very few black engineers or black pe people in leadership. And that is a reason, in my view, one reason why you have rampant sexism, rampant uh, racism on the platform. And so having a more inclusive design and teams will lead to uh, the platforms themselves being more respectful of, of different. We are in, in the midst right now of, of I think, still a realignment when it comes to remote work and where people are going to live versus where they work and, and how that ties into a sense of place, which I know you define as, as very important to, to democracy and really making a lot of this, this, these ideas that you outline work. Tell us more you know, about 
you know, the, the importance of, of sense of place as, as you see it and, and maybe how you see that continuing to evolve as, as more companies shift to remote or, or, or hybrid work? Well, this is, this is my corollary to, to, to Adam Smith, who obviously had the sense that when markets uh, uh, work and are efficient and we should allow people to move around uh, wherever the jobs take them and, and to construct a society based on trade. And there's a lot to recommend markets. There's a lot to recommend trade. But I say it can't be unconstrained, unrestricted with no sense of place that when you just tell people move, go where the jobs are, go trade, and you have no sense of respecting community, respecting place, then you end up destabilizing communities. You end up destroying hope and opportunity for many people who can't afford to move or don't want to move. And you end up creating deep polarization as is beset not just our democracy, but many democracies in the West. And so my sense is let's have some focus in our democratic society on, yes, economic growth and economic development, but also uh, a focus on place and making sure that every place has a chance to participate in that. And it was most acute in the case of the digital revolution, which has left out so many places in this country. Right. And, you know, you outlined so many policy proposals and, and policy ideas in this book. We don't have, have time to, to get to them all in this conversation. But how do you think about how to prioritize them moving forward? Are there are there certain things or is, is there an order that you see or, or a certain you know, hierarchy of, of, you know, what we need to be tackling first? Well, the book was supposed to be a conversation starter, not sort of here is my uh, manifesto for 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 the the uh, digital age, but more here are some ideas. What do you what do you think? And let's start. Let's experiment on what can be done. But if I had to pick, I would say let's do two goals. One, a jobs goal. Let's create uh, two million new digital jobs for rural Americans and Black and Brown Americans in the next uh, five years. I think that's achievable uh, and can be done with a partnership between. Uh, universities in the private sector with the federal government's leadership. And, and two, let's make sure that we have some real legislation on an Internet Bill of Rights that gives people rights online so that the worst excesses of online speech are... Last question, Congressman. What does democracy mean to you? Democracy to me means the recognition of the genius and extraordinary potential of each individual. The idea that you don't have to be a king or an aristocrat to have an extraordinary life, to have a meaningful life. It's not just about the right to vote. It's a, it's a fundamental belief that uh, contribution and excellence of living is something that is accessible to all. Uh, and not just to the privileged field. And that's a radical thought. It's a thought that probably only has been really vibrant for the past uh, 100 to 200 years, uh, certainly in terms of uh, being inclusive. Uh, It's a true thought, but we have a long way to go to make it a reality. Right. Well, thank you for, for all of your work in this book and in Congress to try to get us closer to that reality. And uh, thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jenna, for that great interview. 
Um, one of the things that stands out to me as I was listening to Representative Khanna, but and um, and also you know reading the book, is that he seems to you know kind of be like a mix of an optimist and a pragmatist. Um, and you know one of the ways that we see this is in his kind of notions of um, progressive capitalism. Um, you know, and I I think that you know we can point to a lot of problems with capitalism, but, you know, as a pragmatist, I think politically it's, I think he sees it as important for us to consider, well, what are our constraints and how do we work within our constraints? What are the constraints uh, regarding capitalism or what are the constraints regarding his role as a U.S. rep? Both. Both. Uh-huh. both. All right. So I think you're right. And I think he, um, but I also think that his uh, position is, is fairly principled and it's not unique to him. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people who will argue um, that um, who was, Nehru was a socialist in India. Right. And, and really achieved, little to nothing in terms of the well-being of your average Indian. And then India embraced capitalism. And as a result of that, um, you know, for whatever good or bad, I mean, for for all the negatives, it well enhanced the well-being of your average Indian. And so there is an argument to be made that there is nothing, there is no economic system that is as powerful as producing at producing wealth and enhancing the economic well-being of people as capitalism. However, and I think that's what Ro Khanna would say, and that's what people in the uh, Silicon Valley would say. However, he would also say that there are, that an unbridled capitalism, an unregulated capitalism, a capitalism where um, there are no values or objectives outside of the profit margin or profit motive is just um, not good. It's, it's not, um, it doesn't produce be- uh, good ends for the people that it claims to serve. It only serves a select few. You know, so let me just preface this. When I was in graduate school, I took a class and, uh, you know, we have to do these um, weekly responses and we would get an assessment on the responses. And the one day, I can't remember what we were talking about, but my, the response on my paper was Candace, you don't know shit about capitalism. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And I think on some level, I have always shied away from thinking a lot about capitalism because I was discouraged from doing that. But (laughs) It also seems that with capitalism, as we've seen it, we also see increases in inequality. We see lots of exploitation. And I just, you know, I I think the other thing is that like there's this idea about the free market. And the fact of the matter is, is that we never have free markets. The U.S. government in particular, and maybe in other countries, I don't know, has always helped capital. Mm-hmm. And so they've used the power to um, enhance inequality, inequity, and exploitation. And so I guess I'm curious to know if you think that we are at a point when 
our political representatives have the will and that the public has an understanding of the dynamics in such a way to kind of say like, all right, let's let the government use its power to undo some of the things that we've seen. I, I, I feel at the center of many of the arguments here is uh, leveraging capitalism for good. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't seen evidence of that doing good for the most amount of people. Right. Um, there is a, uh, a tradition. It's probably a minority tradition, and it probably only happens in periods, or is most likely to happen in periods of crises. But there are times in American history where we have constrained capitalism, right? Clean Water Act constrained capitalism. Clean Air Act constrained capitalism. These were, you know, um, the air and the water were, um, you know, economists call them public goods and externalities. And so the capitalist was able to say, hey, look, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, you know, putting in the air. It's just the air. And then we come to find out that that's not good for everyone. And so eventually... Um, government stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. And if and OSHA is the same thing, right? These put constraints on capitalism in order to serve ends other than profit, other than an individual's profit. Um, I think that Ro Khanna greatly uh, underestimates the power, the condition of our society right now with respect to um advancing the role of government as a constraint on capitalism. I see. Um, Yeah, I guess even as you're talking about like clean air and clean water, I was thinking of like Flint and um, of like red line areas that still have worse air than places that weren't red line. So, you know, even then, like the incentives have often been to, um, you know, ensure that people who are better off stay better off and those who are worse off can be, um, you know, that's where you're, are made worse off. (laughs) No, I think he oversells that to be quite honest. I don't think it's nearly as, as easy or, well, not easy. He doesn't say it's easy. I don't think it's nearly as viable as he would argue it is. But I, I mean, I have a hard time arguing against any one of the goals that are in there. I just don't think it's Mm -hmm. going to happen. Sure. I actually think that one of the things that is helpful in the book is that he does kind of correct the idea about tech just being these jobs where people are on their computers, Mm -hmm. right? That um, tech does still have a manufacturing component. Right. And there are some other kind of other, you know, like I think, for example, in farming, farming is a place where, um, you know, our our ideas and concerns about climate change intersect with technology, intersect with um, also kind of racial equity matters. There are actually a lot of Black farmers and farmers of color right. who have been carved out of that occupation systematically. Um, but there are right there are opportunities uh, to invest here with technology. Um, you know. One of the things 
I think if I were just going to like try to tap into my optimistic side um, is that, you know, when we talk about moments, right, that there are moments when we see the government moving, um, you know, toward uh, constraining capitalism. There are moments that we see more racial equity. There are these moments. And I wonder if this will be a moment where we see that, you know, people are freaking out uh, about gas prices and inflation. And so I wonder if this is a moment of opportunity where we can see like, hey, maybe we should have more green energy and technology here. And that those, you know, that kind of work could be done in rural places. There is this sense in which this book is fundamentally um, laying out a vision of what's possible and a vision for, you know, democratic politics going forward that engages people who feel resentment and who feel left out. And it's the the policy, you know, you, you said it, it, it's like a laundry list this is not your typical political laundry list. It's it's thoughtful. It's well documented, and um, and you know we're we're we should feel grateful to have it part of our political discussion. So um, thank you to to Ro Connor for writing the book. Thanks to Jennifer for the uh, for the terrific interview. I'm Chris Beam, and I'm Candace Watt Smith. Thanks for listening.